You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. It was about noon. It would have been hot as all get out. It would have been a rare and random conversation at best. There was nothing about this conversation that was normal by any stretch of the imagination. But Jesus was tired and Jesus was hot. And part of the reason this conversation is so rare is because of where he is, when he is, and who he's going to talk to. So where we find ourselves is in John chapter 4, four if you want if you want if you want to open up in there you can go ahead we'll be there in a moment. And in chapter 4 we find Jesus in an area known as Samaria. Now for those of you who maybe haven't been doing the church thing very long or didn't know this, Samaritans and Christ, or not Christians, Jews, really, really, really did not like each other. Imagine whatever the worst form of racism you're familiar with and go ahead and apply it here. That is how the relationship went. We could ask why, and briefly, I could give you hundreds of years of history, but even then I couldn't scratch the surface, just to name a few things. When the Israelites were birthed as a nation from God, um, he had intended for them to represent him on the earth and to bring about his righteousness and his righteous reign with justice and peace in their midst. But when the Israelites turned away from God and hardened their hearts and worshiped of false idols, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet warning them to turn back to him and he would heal them, but they wouldn't turn back to him. And instead, he sent the Assyrians to conquer Israel, to conquer the, the Jewish people as a discipline of them. So in roughly 722 BC, 700 years, or 750 years probably before this conversation, the uh, Assyrians came in and took over Jerusalem. They ransacked it and took away many of the Israelite people, except some were left behind, and what happened is they would move some of their own people in in an effort to conquer and develop the culture according to their own culture. Sometimes they would uproot both groups of people and move them somewhere else and put another group in, and this way they could keep rebellion from building up because there was never a chance for anything to really take hold. But what happened over time is, even though God's word commanded the Israelites not to marry the outside foreign nations, those who were left in Jerusalem went and had married the Assyrians. So when Ezra, the book of Ezra, came back in to try to rebuild the temple, these now half-breeds, if you will, half-Assyrian, half-Jewish people from down through the generations were living in the land, and they offered to help. And the others who were scattered, the Jewish people, said, absolutely not. You did not listen and obey the word of God. Out of those events came terrible racism, judging, cruelty, back and forth. They did horrible thing after horrible thing. Things got so bad that the Jews would no longer allow these new Samaritans to come in and worship in their temple. So the Samaritans went and created their own temple in a little town called Gerizim. Essentially, they actually rewrote the Old Testament story and placed themselves as one of the 12 tribes of Israel, though they really weren't originally. They discounted all of the historical and prophets except for the first five books. And as generation after generation occurred, racism and evil and hatred, we found now in Jesus' day, the Jews would have nothing to do with the Samaritans. In fact, at one point, when Jesus is teaching on various subjects, the disciples asked Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven and destroy the Samaritans. Just to give you an idea. In Jesus' day, here's a map. People would literally, I don't know if you can make this out of here, who's Judea, Jerusalem. Here is uh, Samaria, 
And this is Nazareth and in the region of Galilee, Nazareth. You may recognize where Jesus was born. Typically, if somebody was coming from Jerusalem and wanted to travel up into Galilee, they wouldn't take the direct route as this green line shows. They would literally, where this dotted line is, go all the way around, crossing the Jordan River, and back up. In fact, where Jesus was in John chapter 3, he was already pretty close to the Jordan River. It would have actually not only been natural in his culture, but also would have been almost easier to continue on that dotted line path. Jesus turns around, makes a beeline, and heads right to this little circle at Jacob's well. Why? What in the world would make Jesus want to go to a well in the middle of the day in Samaritan territory? Not only are they the bad guys, but this was a dangerous journey. If you were a Jewish person, it's very likely you could get beat up or robbed. And Jesus went right through the pain, the turmoil, and the cultural divide. The reason why is because he was on a mission. He had a word from God. In fact, it was common for Jesus, we're told throughout the Gospels, that he would often go away to lonely places and be with his heavenly Father. In fact, we're told many times, as was his custom, he would get up while it was still dark. Anybody who has kids knows that's the only time you're going to get time with God is when it's dark and everybody's in bed and asleep. And you get up and you quietly tiptoe downstairs and you get a few moments of quiet time. And Jesus would do this all the time. In fact, sometimes he would so intently be talking to God, he would begin at night and go all night long. And on one of these conversations, God revealed to him what he was to do next. And Jesus was planning on obeying. And so he ends up at a well, Jacob's well, an extremely famous well. It still exists today, though it has like a church or something built over it today. This well would have been over 2,000 years old. We talked about Jacob around Easter time. If you're curious about his story, go back and listen to our Easter messages after the weeks after Easter. This well was such an important thing. In fact, it's talked about in the Jewish religion, Christianity, and the Muslims even talk about it. It is such a well-documented well that's been around now for thousands of years. It still exists, though different today. It still exists because Jesus was a real man living in history. He wasn't just made up. These were real places, and he went to real people. And while he's sitting there that day, he looks at the disciples. He says, I need you guys to go get lunch. Get out of here. And he didn't have to send all of them, but he sent them away. And a woman walks up. Why would a woman be at a well in the middle of the day when the sun is beating down on her? I think the story will tell us a little bit in a moment. Jesus looks at the woman and he says, would you give me a drink of water? There is so much that's going wrong in this story. You may not know it, though. So not only is Jesus a Jewish man, but since he's a rabbi, probably wears rabbi garb, it would be completely inappropriate for a rabbi to talk to a woman, especially if he was unsure of whether she was married or not. It would have been culturally unacceptable because it would have been offensive to her husband if a rabbi or another man were to talk to his wife in this way. I know it's hard for us to understand some of these cultural things in America. Like we have no boundaries where we need boundaries. Maybe they had too many boundaries, I don't know. I know that when I went to India on a mission trip and uh, they were doing a bunch of baptisms and they were inviting me to do them, I didn't have anything to do with leading those people to Christ, but they wanted me to have the honor. And so I got into the, this baptistry thing and, and right before I was about to do it, PV pulls me aside and he's like, hey, pastor, um, just so you know, do not hug the women when you come up out of the water. And I went, what? And he's like, do not hug the women. 
trust me. I was like, okay. And later I found out, apparently it's completely inappropriate for a man to touch another woman, another man's wife. And anyway, you don't shake her hand. You don't do anything. You do not touch her. You don't put your hand on her to pray. You don't do anything. It's culturally inappropriate. And I'm really glad because I didn't want to die that day. But Jesus breaks through all those boundaries and he's alone with a woman in the middle of the day and he's Jewish and he's a rabbi and he says, can you get me some water? John chapter four, verse nine. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Notice it even says in a parenthetical thought, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is about to, he's the master teacher, by the way. I love listening to Jesus. I love reading Jesus because when you understand what he's doing, it's like, oh, that is so cool. So, okay, real quick. How many of you like the movie Frozen? All right, come on, guys. You can admit it. So yesterday, uh, I live, by the way, on Princess Lane, I have three little boys. When we bought our house, there were pink countertops, the same pink countertops in every single room. The carpet was pink. By God's grace, that is no longer true. Can I get an amen, man? <laughs> but even though I live on Princess Lane with pink countertops and used to have pink carpet, I watched a little bit of Frozen with my boys yesterday, and I'm not sure where to go with that. But we were watching the movie Frozen, and I was telling my boys, my favorite song in all of Frozen is not Let It Go, it's not love is an open door. My favorite might technically be Olaf's just because I think it's genius. But my favorite song actually, like, like, like musically, my favorite song is the opening song. You know what I'm talking about? It's, first of all, it's the most manly thing in the whole movie. Like after that, it's all downhill. But the opening song reminds me of something like out of The Hobbit. Like I just love the way it sounds. But I was trying to explain to my nine-year-old, my seven-year-old, and my four-year-old how the opening song is a metaphor for the entire story. Maybe you've never noticed this before. But here you have these men who are chopping ice apart. Think about how ice is the analogy for the whole movie. So you've got this lady who's got ice powers, and she's got this uh, cold heart from things that happened to her. And you've got the bad guys in the story, and they are truly cold-hearted. But truly, she's cold-hearted by gift or by curse, you might say. But she isn't really. She's actually a really tender and nice person. But in the end, she hurts her sister's heart by turning it ice. But then love frees them all. Do you see it? The opening song, go back and listen if you didn't pick it up, is like foretelling everything that's going to happen in the movie. My wife hates watching movies with me because I ruined movies for her. Oh, this is why they did that. This is what's gonna happen next. Here's, because I understand how stories work. But Jesus is doing the exact same thing in John chapter four. If you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me and I'd give you living water. Living water in Jesus' day was a common analogy. See, there's two kinds of water. There's standing water or stagnant water and there's living water. Living water is water that is on the move. Water that is alive. So if you had a cistern, maybe like a, 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 something you dug into the ground, metal or something that would catch rain, over time what happens to water that's just caught and sits in the ground? It turns gross. It gets full of muck and mold. It doesn't, really isn't all that useful. But if you have a river or a stream or probably in Jacob's well's case, a spring bubbling up, you have living water. Jesus is about to do a frozen on, on this lady and he's going to help her understand what he really means. If you really knew who you were talking to, you would ask me and I'd give you living water. And she says, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 11, sir, 
the woman said. You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as he did also his sons and his livestock? She's picking up on the undertones of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is sitting at a well. Will you get me a drink? How am I going to get you a drink? You ain't got no bucket, buddy. That's basically what's going on. Maybe better English. So we don't know exactly how deep Jacob's well is. Uh, Roughly 100 years ago, it was at least 40 meters deep. Today, it's roughly 20 meters deep because people got curious and would drop rocks in it to see how deep it was and what would happen. So they've made up a lot of that gap. Who knows if you go back 2,000 years, just exactly how deep that well was because I'm guessing many boys walked up to that well over time and maybe dropped a rock or two in. It apparently was an extremely deep well, whatever that means. And she looks at Jesus and says, okay, you're so great, you're so awesome. How am I supposed to get you water, buddy? By the way, she's picking up on his undertones. Are you better than Jacob? Jacob who built this? Jacob who is the father of our people? You're better than him? Is that what you're saying? Here's Jesus' answer. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Living water was not just the word used to describe running water in Jesus' day. Living water was also the biblical metaphor for what God was doing. One of them, he had many, what God was doing when the Messiah would come, the Christ. One is Hebrew, one is Greek. They mean the same thing, the anointed one. The one who wouldn't just be a prophet, but would be different, special. He'd be a king like David, but righteous. He'd be a prophet like Elijah, but with more power. He'd be a priest like Aaron, but pure. What they didn't know, he'd be a lamb, like the Passover lamb, but a man. Their debate is now turning away from a well to something deeper and more profound. What Jesus is saying to this woman, for reasons, unless you know the story, you don't even know why yet. He's saying to this woman, everybody who comes back here, it's hot right now, right? We're maybe at 12, 15 in the day. You're gonna dig dig into that well. You're gonna take a drink. By the time you carry home your resources for all your animals or whatever, by the time you even get back there, you're gonna be thirsty again and you're gonna take another drink. And 10 minutes after that, you're gonna be thirsty again and you're gonna take another drink because by the way, that's what every man-made well does. But when I give living water, I give something fresh, something real, something alive. Something like you've been looking for your whole life but couldn't find, I offer it. But she kind of picks up a little bit on what he's saying. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Uh, let's just pause for a minute. Before I really get into her story, because we're almost there, uh, I don't know how to read this. I don't know if she's being sarcastic. That's how I want to read it, but I tend to be sarcastic far more than is healthy for people that love me. Like, I just, I tend to be sarcastic. I can't tell if she's being sarcastic or if she's really seeking light. And I don't know that the text is clear enough because I think if you read it as sarcasm, it might sound like this. Oh, sure, you've got that kind of water, huh? Why don't you give me some? What's it hidden in your tunic? Where you got it at? 
If it's red as somebody seeking light, maybe she's starting to understand something. Maybe there is something different about you. I mean, here you are, a Jewish rabbi, something unique about you. Nobody else would even do what you're doing right now, and yet you're talking to me, and it's completely appropriate. There seems to be no guile in you at all. There seems to be nothing in you that has a hidden motive. You're not here flirting with me. You're not here making passes at me. You truly seem interested in me and in my story, so there's something unique. Maybe she's seeking light. Sir, if you have something like that, I would love to have it. I don't know which way to read it. I only know that Jesus has a profound response. Verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and then come back. Culturally, this would have been appropriate. They've already been inappropriate by even having this conversation alone at the well. Why don't you get out of here and go go grab your husband and come back? But what we're about to learn is... uh, Jesus is going about 20 layers deeper than she was ready to go. I have no husband, she replies. Oh, swing and a miss, Jesus. Good try. Not exactly. Verse 17. Jesus said to her, you were right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands and the man you are now You now have, he's not even your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, if you didn't know Jesus and you didn't know the story and you don't understand the context, you might think Jesus is being cruel. Why in the world, Jesus, are you exposing this woman in this way? It just sounds like Jesus is bringing all of her baggage out into the open and just embarrassing her. But there's nobody else there. It's he and her. That could be terrible English, I don't know. It's the two of them. Jesus is not exposing her. He's not embarrassing her. Jesus is doing what Jesus does over and over and over again, and he's getting right to the point. He does this with the the, the rich young ruler who says, I've kept all of the commandments. And Jesus says, here's one you haven't kept. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Jesus knew the man's heart. He knew what was holding him back from a right relationship with God. Jesus went right to the point. Jesus knows what's holding her back. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is right. We're about to find out in the next verse. Jesus is right in his assessment that she's had five husbands and the man she's with now is not her husband. Here's what we don't know, why? Now, ever since the Reformation, John Calvin and others wrote and told us that this was an immoral woman, that she had committed adultery five times, had five separate husbands, and now she's living in sin. Here's the thing. The text doesn't actually tell us that. We can read that, we can find evidence for that in the text, but there are a number of reasons why a woman in that society would have five husbands. Take, for instance, divorce. In Jesus' day, Jesus taught so strongly against divorce, and it was such an in-your-face kind of thing because in Jesus' day, a Jewish man could divorce a woman for any number of things. Adultery was clear and obvious, but literally a Jewish man could divorce a woman to put her away just for displeasing him. And some of you wives are like, oh man, (laughs) my marriage might not have made it. That's the point. When Jesus taught on divorce, his own disciples are like, but Jesus, who can do that? Because Jesus was so clear, no, 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 no. There's gonna be tension in marriage, but by God's grace, you'll work through it. But what God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's another one, a widow. If a husband were to get sick and die, by the way, very common in that day, they didn't have the kind of medicine and doctors that we have today. 
Very common. And so what would happen is the Old Testament taught about something called the kinsman redeemer. The closest relative of her husband, male relative, it would start with a brother and go on from there. They were to marry her. And this was God's way of creating a system that would care for those who couldn't be cared for. God was always aware of the weak and the oppressed and trying to create systems that would minister to them and help them. It's very possible some of her husbands, if not all of her husbands, came from the kinsman redeemer situation. Someone dies, she gets married, they die, she gets married, they die, she gets married. We don't know. And then, of course, there's the one that we've taught about and heard about for years, which is she's an immoral woman. It doesn't really matter which one it is. And we tend to think that it matters, but the reality is we have a woman at a well in the middle of the day, Jesus has sent his judgmental disciples off to get them out of the story so that he can have a very God-honoring, God-driven, purposeful conversation with a woman who has a clear history of trauma. She's been hurt over and over and over. As a pastor over the years, I get many, many questions over and over and over again in different ways. And the two most common questions I get, the second most common is something like this. Pastor, I feel like I pray and I pray and I pray. And my prayers go up and they hit the ceiling and they come back down. And I don't know where God is. And I just need to know, does he love me? The number one question, we'll get to that in just a minute. Look at verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I could see that you are a prophet. In other words, Jesus' assessment of her life is clear enough, they buy it. I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied. By the way, it's biblical when I call my wife woman. I'm joking, men, don't you dare. Unless you're quoting John 4, 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So again, here's basically what happens. Oh, you're greater than Jacob, huh? Well, go ahead and give me some of that water. I'd love to have some. I'll tell you what, go get your husband. Mm -mm, I don't have a husband. You're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now, he's not your husband. Ooh. I got an idea. Let's change the topic. Ever been in a conversation like this? Things get a little too personal, a little too close. Somebody says, so what are you doing this weekend? Or, hey, did you hear what Trump did the other day? Or, man, can you believe this TV show? Or, da 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 Did you see what she just did? She's trying to change the subject. She's trying to reroute a little bit, redirect just a little bit. I don't like it when it was looking at me. Let's keep it about religion for a minute. But there's also, I think, a part of her that is seeking light. Okay, so he knew things that he couldn't have known. He's never met me. He doesn't even live around here. In fact, most Jews avoid us altogether. Everything about this conversation is different, unique. He's clear something's unique about him. So I'm going to get right to where I think the next thing ought to be. She's obviously an educated woman. She's been paying attention in church when the rabbis taught. She understands something, and Jesus gets right to the core of it and says, you understand a little bit because you're a Samaritan, but you've ignored all of the prophets. You've ignored the Psalms. You've ignored all this huge part of what God has been doing in history, but God has not been ignoring you. 
And one day it won't matter whether you worship to Gerizim or in Jerusalem. It'll matter that you love God. In verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus goes right at her. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I could do another hour, but we don't have time on Jesus using I am here. It's clearly a connection back to God's name that he gave Moses at the burning bush when God said, I am, or I am that I am. But more than that, Jesus just identified himself. Many times in the gospels, Jesus does not identify himself. Many times, Jesus doesn't say exactly who he is. And usually when he does, he says, don't go tell anybody. He heals a leper and you know, he says, why don't you go to the temple and offer the sacrifice required for this kind of thing? Part of it was God wanted, Jesus wanted to witness to the priests at the temple, but the leper didn't do it. He went around telling everybody what this amazing thing that happened and people came out to see Jesus, which gets us to the other reason. Jesus, when all the crowds would come, he'd have to get out into the wilderness to get away from everybody, which is exactly what happened. Jesus, in this case, though, he cuts through all the barriers, all the normalcy, all the regular stuff, and he looks right at this woman because he's on a God-ordained appointment, and he says, I am the one you're looking for. All those lonely nights when you cried out and wondered, God, where are you? Are you paying attention? Do you even care? I'm the answer. And the answer is yes. In fact, in verse 34, Jesus goes on. Well, let me get to that in a minute. I gotta tell you what happened next. The woman leaves because the disciples show up with lunch. And when they show up with lunch, I don't know, we we aren't told why. You know, maybe they got their Jimmy Johns, or like, I got a turkey, and I got a Reuben here, and uh, hey, who's that lady? Well, she immediately feels uncomfortable. Like, here's a guy who knows everything about me, and I don't know these guys. They're clearly Jewish, and she leaves. But when she goes back into town, she goes back into town and tells everybody, I met a man, and he knew things he should never have known. He knew everything about me. He told it to me. I don't understand it, but you gotta at least come see him. He might be the one. And the crowd comes back out. But in between the crowd, she going out, talking to her town, and them coming back out to meet Jesus at the well, the disciples are handing out the food or whatever. And Jesus looks at them and says, I'm not hungry. What do you mean you're not hungry? You sent us away to get food. Like, what is going on? He's like, no, no, you don't understand. I have a food that you don't know about. And they're like, has Jesus been hiding stuff in the tunic? Would you want to eat that after the hot sun? Like, I don't know what's going on. They are literally confused. And then Jesus looks at them in John 4, 34, and he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, to finish his work. And now we get to the crux of it all. Jesus wasn't there at the well on accident that day. I remember one time I was coming back from something called the Orange Conference. It's a conference for children's and youth pastors. I was at my last church. It was only a year or so before I came here. And I was sitting at the back of the plane and it was packed like sardines and two or three seats arose ahead of us. There was a lady sitting on the end and nobody sitting next to her in the other two seats. I don't know if I'm just bold or, or, or stupid or what, but I decided to get up and go ahead and sit on the end. And so I was in the middle seat, so everybody next to me was thankful, but then I sat on the end, so I was thankful. And I just thought, this is great, I'm getting to make some leg room for me. But when I sat down about 15 minutes into the flight, it was clear that I was on a God-ordained appointment. 
I spent about the next 35 minutes to an hour or so on this flight from Georgia to Denver talking with this lady about God. She was an atheist, maybe even an agnostic. If you don't know the difference, don't worry about it. But she had questions. And so we just talked for roughly an hour. I never got to lead her to the Lord. I never like took her into the bathroom and sprinkled her with water or anything like that. Like, but I'm hopeful that one day I'll stand in heaven and maybe somebody will come up to me and say, I met you on an airplane. Because I know in, in one moment, God opened a door and it was just my job in that moment to be faithful to whatever he called me to do. So here's that other thing, that other question I get asked more than any other question. What's God's will for my life? Sometimes people ask, like, does God want me to marry this woman? Does God want me to take this job? Does, does God want me to move? Does God want me to leave my job and go into ministry? Should I go on this mission trip? There's this person at work, and I don't know what God's doing. I get asked a question. You could, you could phrase it specifically in a million different ways, but the reality is the number one question I've gotten as a pastor is not even close. It's something related to God's will for my life. And here's the thing. I need you to know this, church. God is at work in you and all around you all the time all the time. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. He's not taking a moment off, which is good for you because you can take a moment off because he's God and he'll be at work. But if you're tuned into what God is doing like Jesus is, then when God is at work, you'll notice his activity. You'll join him in what he's doing and you will take part in changing the world. You ever wonder what God's purpose is for your life? It's simply to join him in the awesome work that he is doing all over the world. In fact, Jesus says in the very next chapter, John chapter five, Jesus actually says this, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Did you catch what Jesus just said? God is always at work. Jesus has come only to do what he sees the father doing. So when he sees God at work, he joins in that work and amazing things happen. The same pattern is true for you and for me. There's a great little book called Experiencing God. Just curious, would you just raise your hand if you've ever read it or read part of it? And I don't mean just the title. Okay, a number of you. I'm challenging everybody here to go out and get a copy of this book this week. Like immediately, like today. Like let's just take them all from Amazon. See if we can buy them all. And if you walk right outside these doors, there's a little counter in the corner back here. It's made of, it looks like it's made of pallet wood. One of our people here made it. I just put together a little reading schedule. And I'm just challenging all Kingsway people to read this little book along with us. I put it down for you to read one chapter every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. If you do that, we will all finish the book at the same time as we're walking through the series together on September the 30th, which is gonna be an amazing Sunday. You aren't gonna wanna miss it. And I already know what some of you are thinking, but pastor, I don't read. Yes, you do. You read the news when it pops up on the TV, don't you? You read your phone, maybe in the bathroom or other places, Facebook, ESPN, People, Cosmopolitan, Fox News, CNN, Yahoo, wherever you get your information, you read. The truth is not that you don't read. 
The truth is that most of us don't have our lives settled to the point where sitting down and reading a book is feasible, especially not one that actually looks somewhat thick, and especially not on Bible subjects. But here's the thing. If you've been a Christian your whole life, this book will speak to you, challenge you, and encourage you. And if you're brand new at this, this book is gonna speak to you, challenge you, and encourage you. I read it about a year ago. God led me to it with my men's group. I had a book I bought. I read through it and immediately went, this is not a good book. I don't even agree with what the guy is saying. And so I got rid of it. But I was two weeks out from needing a book for my men's group. And I'm literally looking at the books on my shelves. What have I read before uh, that I'm gonna give my men's group? And this one caught my attention. And I picked it up and I handed it out to the guys and had no idea what God would do through this book in me and through my men's group. And I immediately knew I need to lead our church through this. And I'm just asking you, maybe for six weeks to do something uncomfortable, buy a book, read with us. Because I promise this, if you wanna be like Jesus, which is our mission statement, we wanna become like Christ, then it's gonna require you studying him to learn his ways and recognize what God is up to in the world. In the book, Henry Blackaby says this, one of the greatest tragedies among God's people is that even though they long to experience him, they do not know how to recognize him at work in their midst. And I wanna change that for you. I want you to know with absolute certainty what God is up to in the world and how to join him. But here's the thing. This week, you're gonna get the book and you're gonna start reading and you're gonna start learning about who God is and what God's like and what God wants to do in the world. But if you're not ready, you may miss immediate opportunities. My goal for you this week is to simply rest in your loving relationship with your heavenly father. Perhaps like Jesus who would stay up late all through the night or even get up early while it was still dark and be with your heavenly father. Maybe you need to institute those same principles into your life so that you might join him because the alternative, and don't miss this, the alternative to doing this is you become stagnant cistern kind of water. You can become a Christian who's not full of living water, the Holy Spirit that is bubbling up out of you and pouring out for others to receive life. Instead, you just become water who keeps taking in and taking in and taking in, but nothing ever comes out to give away to anybody else. And if you never give out and have more put back in, you'll eventually just hand to other people mold and muck and mud and junk and bacteria that'll lead them to their own death. But if you will become like Jesus predicted you would become, a spring of living water where things are just pouring out of you as God is pouring into you, your entire life will change. And to that end, what I wanna do is pray over you right now. Father, Everybody just take a deep breath. Our lives are busy, God. We're stressed, we're overwhelmed, we're pressed. We got a checklist of things to do, needs to meet, fun things to experience. God, it, we just wanna confess right now as a church, as a church, it is so easy to miss what you are doing in this world. It is so easy to think that because we are at lunch, that lunch was the point and not the waiter, the waitress, the table next to us. 
It is so easy to think because we're at work and we have a job to do and because our country has made it very difficult to talk about you there that our employees, our coworkers, that those around us aren't the reason that we're there, that they don't need prayer, they don't need a need met or encouragement somehow. It's so easy, God, to think that because I have to cut my grass and pull some weeds, the whole reason I'm in my neighborhood is to care for my stuff and not, God, that you put me in my neighborhood to be a salt and a light to those around me. Oh, God, I, I, I repent. We repent. Father, of every time that we have selfishly lived this life for ourselves and not for your glory and not for you, God, you want to do great things like this woman at the well. You want to meet people at their point of need and encourage them and challenge them with the truth and say, God loves you. He's been listening. He's paying attention. And God, we want you to use us. Use us. Open our eyes. Open our ears. Open our hearts. God, tear down the walls of racism. Tear down the walls of judgmentalism. Tear down the walls of busyness. Tear down the walls of whatever it is the enemy is putting in our way that, God, we might see what you see and hear what you hear and know what you know and join you in the great work you are doing in the lives of others. If you are with me in this prayer, then all God's people pray. Amen.